Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and today my co-host is Claire McInerney, State Impact Indiana reporter for WFIU and WTIU, and also uh, an education reporting expert, I would say. <laughs> We're talking about education today. Charter schools are public schools that use taxpayer dollars. They're somewhat controversial around the state. Um, some believe that uh, they shouldn't be considered public schools. And today on Noon Edition, we'll be talking with some people about that. We have three guests who will be with us in the studio, although one's caught in traffic, which isn't a hard thing to happen to you today in Bloomington. Ashlyn Nelson is with us. She is a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Indiana University. And Jenny Robinson, uh, parent and advocate for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. Also joining us soon will be Michelle McCowan, uh, General Counsel of the Indiana Charter School Board. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or one 877 285-9348. And you can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks for being here, both of you. And Claire, education topics. Let's, al- let's do it. I'm always good to have my you favorite. here. Right. Okay. Well, I want to ask Ashlyn Nelson first about just this definition of charter schools. Can you help us with that? Sure. Charter schools are, as you mentioned, public schools, and they are created by uh, interested local stakeholders to provide an alternative education from um, an alternative from traditional K-12 public schools. Uh, The way that they work is that uh, a group of individuals gets together and writes a charter to get authorization from a state authorization agency to create the school. And once they are authorized by state-endorsed authorization boards, they are able to start enrolling students. When they get that permission to enroll students, they get the same per-pupil funding allocation that traditional public schools get from the state, uh, with a key distinction being that they don't receive funding to uh, build or renovate a facility. So Mm -hmm. that's the way that charter schools are formed, and uh, they've... Uh, really increased in popularity over the last two decades. We saw some of the first charter schools opening in the mid-1990s, and since then there has been a huge wave in the opening of charter schools and a lot in Indianapolis. There are nearly 100 now, or there will be nearly 100, correct? Yes. Okay. And so you talk about them being a lot of them in Indianapolis. Those, as I understand it, are really geared toward students that perhaps have uh, have been underachieving and also have are in po- high poverty areas is that kind of the main reason for having a charter school movement in your state i think that's sort of the the main story that's told about charter schools is that local public schools are failing to serve students, particularly low-income students who are disproportionately students of color, and that those students need a high-performing option that's also located in their neighborhoods that they can attend. Um, And so the vast majority of charter schools nationally are located in low-income urban neighborhoods that predominantly serve students of color. That said, there are lots of charter schools that have also opened in other locations where local uh, stakeholders seek to just provide some other type of alternative school and for whatever reason don't want to pursue opening a private school. So in Indiana, we do see the majority in Indianapolis, up in Gary, um, but like here in Monroe County, we um, are seeing the opening of Seven Oaks, and but they are usually concentrated in bigger, bigger mm-hmm. cities. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Jenny, What's wrong with this charter school movement? Um, well, f- first, I just want to say I, I don't have any formal role with MCCSC. Right. I'm, I'm a parent. I've got three kids in in Monroe County schools, uh, public schools, and I'm also a, a volunteer with the Indiana Coalition for Public Education mm-hmm. of Monroe County. So we are very interested in seeing our public schools supported, and we understand public schools to be pub. Uh, subject to public oversight and through elected school boards. And I know as a parent, I go to my own school board meetings, I listen to those meetings, and I am very glad. And I, but not, I don't want to say grateful because this is something I expect as a citizen to be able to do that I can go to my school board and I can ask for something that I think is important, like librarians, more recess the arts. And in my public school, 
my board members have an obligation to listen to members of the community like me, and um, that that's that's to me that's accountable to accountability to the community. So that's what I value. And our our group, we are very concerned with what we see as a move toward the privatization of a resource that is a common good, the education of our children. And so charter schools represent that. Um, and and they their the NAACP membership just recommended a moratorium on privately managed charter schools. I think throughout Indiana, most charter schools would be considered privately managed because they do not have elected boards. One of the things that concerns us, uh, just to give a quick overview, is the effect on the public school system. Any any charter school is going to, you have to elect to go, you often have to apply. This means you need to have the resources to think in advance and to get that application together. So the, the result is that um, families with more resources are more likely to turn to charter schools and those with less resources who are, for instance, homeless or have two full-time working parents who cannot begin to think in February about options for next year for their children, they are less likely to look ahead. So the effect on the school system can be an increase of high need, high poverty, English language learners in the public schools. Mm -hmm. Ashton, let's help break down some of that um, in terms of the accountability. Explain the charter, which is kind of the document this group would put forth to get approval, um, because many charter schools have boards um, and how that functions. And so it probably isn't the same as a school board, but how does that look when they become a charter school? Um, I think there's a lot of variability across states, but um, charter schools do need to have some sort of board of directors in place. Um, it's just that they need not necessarily be elected. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, just to rewind a little bit, talking about authorizers, here in Indiana, the groups that can approve a, a charter school um, are the Indiana Charter Board, which Michelle McCowan, who will be joining us soon as part of and can talk more about that. Um, the Indianapolis Mayor's Office also yes. oversees these. And then we have a, a few, like Ball State is Ball a huge State. one, mm -hmm. um, but some private Universities, so that's who's overseeing these charters. If people weren't aware of that, yeah, that's correct. This this process varies a lot from state to state, and um, the uh, the authorizers play a really important role in ensuring the quality of the education offered by local charter schools. So, in some states, uh, there's a lot of authorizing latitude given to really low quality authorizers. Uh, in Indiana, um, that's actually an exception. So uh, one of the big things that I think the charter school sector in Indiana has going for it is that they've really um, taken a lot of steps to make sure that the authorization process is very, very strong. And so they've ensured that the charter schools that do open are relatively strong. Um, in comparison, I, I, I think Arizona is a very, very weak state. And the authorization process is very, very simple. Um, you've seen a lot of failure in the charter school sector in Arizona. And that's because, you know, if you have a pulse, you can open a charter school. I want to further break that down. Uh, uh, Jenny referred to being privately managed, and I think the charter schools in Indiana are, are very quick to say, well, we're not private schools, we're public schools. So, um, Ashlyn, could you sort of look at this public-private? And also when you said there's an application, you can't get rejected. Just so that's clear, you—it's well, open enrollment at a charter school like a public right, school, right? Until mm -hmm. until a school is full. Right. So if the school is very popular and mm -hmm. attractive, then those people who are there will be a long waiting list. But it's right. not like a private school where they can say we're not accepting you this year. I there are policies that can affect that. For instance, I have been looking at the Seven Oaks Handbook, and I know this this conversation is not about that school in particular, but I think it is an instance of what is going on. And definitely, you know, the policies around the purchase of uniforms, around student appearance, around discipline, for instance, they have a policy that would say, you know, the third referral to the office, a parent needs to come take a child home from school. Then the next time they come to the school, that parent will need to stay with the child all day. That may not be part of the application process, but that is going to affect who can persist in the school because uh, many, many parents cannot afford to do that. They cannot afford mm -hmm. to take a full day, a full day off like that. Mm -hmm. 
in terms of um, thinking about, you know, is this are, are charter schools public versus private? Oftentimes, for-profit um, uh, charter operators are operating the school, and I think that's where a lot of people have uh, take take issue. There's there's basically no empirical evidence that uh, private charter school operators um, improve the management, oversight, or outcomes uh, uh, of charter schools. And so this has been something that has been shown time and again. Um, it's often an argument made by um, school choice proponents that privatization will lead to more efficient outcomes or better academic gains for students um, if they're not managed by public sector government. And um, that they're, that's simply not the case. So there's been several decades of studies done in Ohio in particular looking at the charter school st sector and private turnaround operators and private charter school operators. There's no evidence that they do anything substantively better or lead to better outcomes for children. There, There is, we do know that they spend money to market. We know that if they're for profit, there's money that is being siphoned out of our public school system. As a taxpayer, I want my money that's going to education to actually be spent on education, to be spent on teachers for children, you know, science teachers, mm -hmm. arts teachers, music teachers, all these things. So um, I, I know I'm seeing a lot, you know, when I'm on Facebook, almost every time I'm on there, I'm seeing ads for the Indiana Virtual School. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, as a citizen, do I have access to their budget? How much is being spent on advertising? This is not something that's clear. I have no source that I can go to, to to find that out. To play devil's advocate, we are seeing public school corporations marketing tons and tons of money right now to, because of this school choice landscape we have here in India, if you drive down to Louisville, there's billboards of come to um, New, New Haven. Uh, New Albany. New Albany. Oh my gosh, right. thank you. <laughs> come to New Albany schools. Um, there, I mean, it, Fort Wayne is doing the same Absolutely. thing, radio ads, TV ads, so we can't criticize them for marketing because that is a school trend I, right what now. I, what I want to do is criticize the system, that mm -hmm. we have a system, a market system for something that should be available for every child. And this is not something to play with. So when you have a market, you have a system where uh, supposedly, you know, a good business will survive and a bad business will fail. But when a, it's not a, schools are not businesses. Children are not, um, they're not commodities. And when they're in school, they deserve, they deserve to have this very formative experience, to have a real investment in it. And inve um, so, so I, you know, I talked to, I believe it's Ron Sandlin from the State Board of Education several months ago. He told me that since 2001, between 20% and 25% of charter schools in Indiana have closed. I, I don't think that sounds like a good use of taxpayer education dollars. Can I also ask, and Jenny, you sort of brought this up, and I'm not sure what the, uh, the exact transparency is when it comes mm -hmm. to how they're spending their money, but mm -hmm. when you talk about marketing mm -hmm. for the MCCSC or any other public school, sure. traditional public school, you can go look at their budget and you can yes. see, you can figure out where that money is coming from. Right. I assume you're also saying uh, that with a private or with a, not private, with a char public charter school mm -hmm. who doesn't have that same, uh, there isn't that same transparency. There's right. not that same transparency. And we saw, you know, the, I would also take right. a, a different view on the authorization process and the strength of the authorizers in Indiana. I think it's very unusual across the nation. I don't know if there's any other state that allows private religious colleges to authorize schools. So, mm -hmm. for instance, with Seven Oaks, we have a situation where we have a private religious entity that gets to figure out how to allocate tax dollars in Monroe County. They have no accountability to the public here. And if I have an issue with, say, a Seven Oaks policy, I, I have no one to turn to, right? Claire, you've studied I'm making, this, a, yeah. I'm making a list of questions for when Michelle comes, when it comes to okay, how yeah. things like that. Yeah, because I, I, there has to be some oversight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say I, I do think that there is some um, budget accountability. That's not yeah. to say that there is, um, you know, that it that budget information is not in a magical forest under a secret rock. But um, one thing that is unique about the charter school s sector is that they're operated almost like um, uh, independent school districts. And so they have to report their budget information to OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, every year. Um, and that actually leads to greater transparency at the charter school level than we typically have among uh, school corporations in Indiana. 
And the reason for that is that the school corporation financial reports are totally aggregated at the school corporation level, and they're not required to break out expenditures or revenue source, you know, revenue sources by uh, and how they distribute across schools, and they don't have to break out their expenditures across individual school sites. You can get that information at the charter school level, but it m may or may not actually break out line items spent on advertising. Um, one of the dangers I just want to highlight also about the advertising that's been done, um, which is typically very targeted uh, among charter schools is that we have a lot of evidence in, uh, particularly in urban environments, that uh, charter schools target their advertising toward uh, particular types of families and that this targeted advertising has actually led to the resegregation of schools. So even if we think that the charter school is improving academic outcomes and learning gains for students of color in particular, uh, we have to sort of weigh those uh, potential benefits against the adverse effects of resegregating students of color. Explain that a little bit because there is a ton of research and you know people, researchers like you, doing this kind of work. So explain some of the stuff out there that we've found in terms of resegregation. Um, it, it, these are just studies that have been um, replicated in a number of different urban areas, including New York City, Washington, D.C., um, Chicago. Uh, they, they have just found that, you know, if you, if you compare um, just the share of minority students served by the charter school sector. They're disproportion disproportionately serving low-income and minority students, um, uh, even in comparison to local neighborhood schools. And so that also comes when people say charter schools don't perform as well. A lot of times they might um, enroll a lot of students who were struggling at a bigger public school or traditional public school. They come to this charter school and then they perform worse on tests and things like that, correct? Is that... Um, kind of where that argument comes from? Uh, well, some charter schools just don't do a great job educating students, um, and there's a lot of controversy and many, many different studies using lots of different methods about what could be driving those differences. Um, Credo, which is a research center housed within the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, has undertaken the most comprehensive evaluations that are cross-state on uh, the performance of the charter school sector. And um, they've taken on a number of different um, analyses that attempt to control for those cross-student differences between charter and traditional pu public schools. And what they've found is that there's just a lot of cross-state heterogeneity in the performance of charter of the charter school sector versus the public school sector. So in Indiana, for example, um, after you account for differences in student backgrounds and student racial composition, we see that the students end up doing marginally better in uh, standardized assessments in English and math. Um, but that's not the case in other states. Before we take our first phone call of the day, I want to give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811. In Bloomington, that was 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And you can join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We have a call from Gracia. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I uh, disagree with private charters. But the question that I have is that there are public charters not just in Indiana, but elsewhere that are working for children. And many parents are looking for an option. My question is, if, if the charters are, as, as people say, are um, detrimental to public education, why don't school districts look at these programs and adopt them in the public schools? That's, that's, I, that's been a, a, a question that I've wondered about. Okay, so here's a school that really works. Children's scores are good, they're learning, but we don't emulate that. And we say, oh, my goodness, parents are choosing these charter schools, but we're not looking at what these parents are looking for. And I'm, I don't understand that. So if somebody could address that issue, I would really appreciate it. I, w I would Thank love you. to address that issue. <laughs> I feel so fortunate to have my kids in our local public school system. There is an amazing diversity of experiences available for those children. I've had all three of my children have gone through a multi-age classroom that's a first and second grade classroom together. And that has been amazing. I now... Um, you know, we have over 300 extracurricular activities that are available to our kids. That's so, not my question. That isn't my question. My question isn't that the schools in NCCFC are not good schools. My granddaughter goes to a multi-age school at Templeton. 
I worked at Templeton. Mm-hmm. I appreciate what's happening. Right. My right. question is, there are, there, there, for example, we do have a couple schools that aren't working for children. They're not working for children. Their scores are continually bad. The, they're constantly on disciplinary action by the federal government. If there are charters, or not just charters, but programs, mm-hmm. schools that work for these children, why aren't we copying them? And as you say, for example, children from Fairview, their parents don't have time to find out how do I get to a better program for my children. Why aren't we emulating these programs that we know work for children in poverty? I, you know, why I aren't we guys? I, I do and have. Then, I, and then saying that the charters are an issue because not only are children families with children in poverty looking for options, but so are other parents who look like you are looking at their child and maybe they're not doing well. So what I hear you saying is you you were bringing up exactly why um, Indiana passed the charter law in 2001, because if a kid is going to a school where the parents are unhappy, they now have a choice. And that's a very philosophical um, yeah. Yes. So. And I've been a public school teacher. I worked mm-hmm. in public schools. I believe in public schools. Why mm-hmm. aren't we copying programs where children, where parents are sending their children? Why aren't we looking at programs that work for children in poverty so, and emulating them? That's but, the question. Okay. That we I got, don't, never seen an answer. To. I think we got your okay. question. We have two people who want to answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, Let's start great. with Ashley. I'm Ash- go off the phone uh, and turn so, the radio so, up if that's okay. That's fine. Thank you. Okay. All right, great. Thank you. Um, so. So when charter schools work, it's often difficult to disentangle which particular components of the charter school environment are most effective and are driving the specific outcomes that we see that are positive for kids. So what we know is when a kid enrolls in a charter school, they're getting a bundle of uh, services, and it is, um, it's really difficult to try to figure out, is this because of the instructional capacity of the school? Is this because of the unique curriculum? Is this because of the leadership? Is this the discipline model that they're employing? It's really difficult to disentangle the specific components of the charter school model that make it um, that make it successful for those students. And we don't have a lot of evidence of, okay, well, if you just changed one thing, would you get the same outcomes? And so what we have instead are a bunch of stories that people tell about why they believe their charter schools are so successful, including, you know, from everything from the philosophies of the teachers they hire to um, to the absence of a collective bargaining agreement, right? And so a lot of uh, the stories being told about the charter school sector is that the reason for success in that environment is that they've gotten rid of collective bargaining agreements and in many charter schools, not all. Uh, if you look at um, if you look at several of the major charter school networks that operate, they do not have the same types of collective bargaining agreements in place and teachers are not allowed to sort across schools on the basis of teacher seniority, which in our traditional public school system results in the disproportionate concentration of inexperienced and less qualified teachers in schools that serve low-income students. And so because of that, that is one reason that is being cited for the success of the charter school sector. We cannot adopt that given our current collective bargaining constraints in public education. That said, there is very it's very difficult to actually ascribe causality to that argument because we don't know whether it's the absence of a collective bargaining agreement that is changing the outcomes for students in those schools. Jenny? I'm coming from such a different perspective here. I feel like I'm on another planet. I have seen the loss of collective bargaining as a huge loss to our schools. We need to stop and define collective bargaining for people who are Collective bargaining, when when teachers, so in Indiana Mm -hmm. now, teachers are not allowed, teachers actually have lost a great deal of collective bargaining. Unions are only allowed to bargain with school districts over salary. That is it. So movements that we're seeing in other states, in, in Seattle, teachers stepped up and said, we need to guarantee, again, what, you're, what Ashlyn is mentioning, that a certain equity of experience across schools, po- impoverished schools and schools that serve higher income neighborhoods, we need to guarantee that all our kids have access to recess. Teachers were able to do that in Seattle. Teachers are no longer going to be able to do anything like that in Indiana as long as we have this situation where they do not really have collective bargaining anymore about lots of things that matter, about class size, about what it means to be a librarian, um, about the definitions of different jobs, about how many counselors per a certain number of students you need, things like things like that. Also, another way where, again, I'm, I feel like I'm on another planet. I have not seen this evidence of 
greater success in the charter school sector. And I think you were describing that earlier, where there really is no, what we're seeing instead is a, a similar situation. When we are defining school success, by student test score results. What you will see is that students with um, in higher income neighborhoods will score higher on tests and their schools will be judged successful. Schools in lower income neighborhoods are under much more test pressure. This has a very adverse effect on the kinds of environments sometimes that are in those schools because there is a very logical response which is to try to prepare for a test. However, this is not a situation that our schools have introduce themselves. They are responding to legislative decisions made by, many times made by people who have not spent a great deal of time in public schools. So just like public schools, poor charter schools are getting Ds and Fs. In fact, there is a tremendous amount of money that has, in Indiana, been funneled toward schools that would be considered to be failing. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is a, a big topic, and we're going to have more discussion on it after we uh, take a break for about 90 seconds, but you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Claire McInerney today, and we're talking about charter schools in Indiana. We have two guests with us in the studio, and we're still hoping that we get a third guest before the program is over. Ashlyn Nelson, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Indiana University, and Jenny Robinson, a parent and an advocate for the MCCSC, just in an informal role as an advocate, and she's a member of the Indiana Coalition of Public Education. Um, so if you want to join us, give us a call, 812 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I know uh, the the uh, one of our state newspapers, the Indianapolis Star, did a story. It was probably a, a year or so ago before the last legislative session, but it said the Star's story quoted um, cited a lot of statistics that – 53% um, of charter schools had received a D or an F rating from the state last year compared to 23% in 2010. Charter schools have received an average of $665 more per student in state tuition support than traditional public schools had last year. Are, are these, uh, these kind of uh, data points, these statistics, how meaningful are they, Ashlyn, and what do they say to you? Um, you know, anytime you introduce uh, school choice, you're going to get a variety of different outcomes. And so, you know, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of variation in the performance of charter schools within states and all and even more across states. Mm -hmm. So um, just like we have failing public schools, we also have failing charter schools. Um, so uh, in terms of how much weight to put on the current uh, A through F system, <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's a diagnostic tool for um, that largely reflects the student test-taking abilities of the students um, enrolled in that school. Um, what's interesting is now that they're trying to incorporate um, a growth measure into the school grading model is that this is probably giving more good information than it did previously. So, um, you know, I mean, ch charter school authorizers are really struggling now to close underperforming charter schools, and that in and of itself creates huge is issues for students. Um, 
I, I research student mobility, for example, and we know that even in the case of voluntary moves for students, even across natural transition periods from schools, to, you know, from the elementary to middle school transition, for example, this is hugely disruptive for students and leads to large losses in um, in learning gains in English and math. And so that's another thing that's um, that can affect uh, kids as well. So, so we're now joined by Michelle mm-hmm. McCowan of the Indiana Charter School Board. We were, we've were we tabled a few topics because we thought it would be better once you were here. And one of those is the authorization process for a charter school um, and what's included in a charter and how oversight and accountability kind of works. Um, so will you kind of tell us a little bit about your organization and when a group comes to you, what are you looking for in that, that document to say this is a viable school we should have in our state? Sure. But if I could yeah, absolutely. quickly follow up something that Dr. Nelson said about Indiana now incorporating a growth mm-hmm. measure into our A to F system. I do want to clarify that Indiana has been incorporating a growth measure in our A to F system since 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but not before that. Right. Yeah. So, But for the last several yep. years, A to F has incorporated growth as well as our teacher evaluation system. So yeah. what, that, what that means for people who don't study this stuff like us, um, if a child performed if they failed the I-STEP last year, and then this year they still failed it, but they did much better, the school gets credit and the teacher gets credit for that growth of the child. And so that's what we're talking about when we say growth is incorporated in these grades. Um, If a child still improved but didn't um, become proficient, that's still accounted for in these these measurements. Yes. So back to authorization, do you guys want to kind of jump back to that now that we've talked, how how these schools come to be and tell us what that process is like? Sure. So I am general counsel to the Indiana Charter School Board, which is just one of several mm-hmm. authorizers in the state of Indiana. Um, and so I can speak specifically to our process. Yeah. I can't speak to other authorizers. Um, we have um, two cycles each year, and that process starts with what's called a letter of intent. Um, and that actually just passed for us. So um, what happens is any organization um, a group of folks, essentially, at what we call an applicant board, will file an, a letter of intent to indicate that they seek to apply for approval for a charter school. It's a non-binding letter, but it is a required component of our application process. So if they don't meet this step, they can't proceed. Um, and that will indicate how many schools they would be seeking and which parts of the state. The next step is the actual application, um, and we will receive those. Usually it's about 30 days um, after the letter of intent deadline. Once we receive an application, we do a high-level review to ensure completeness. And then both our staff as well as um, external reviewers, uh, we, we are quite proud of the various external reviewers that we use. They really are experts in the industry. Um, we'll, uh, we will assign two external reviewers that are just general reviewers of every application. For example, we'll use um, Dr. Ben Jenkins from Michigan State University. He's um, been a teacher, a principal. He's also worked in industry. He's led a charter school. He's been in a, um, in a non-public school. He's been a professor at Michigan State. He's been an authorizer. He really has several different buckets of expertise. He'll review it in a general way about the school design, the model, capacity um, of the individuals. So one question we had that Jenny brought up is in a uh, traditional public school, you have a school board that's elected and they have monthly meetings, and that's how parents and community members can come and give feedback. And so how does that work for charter schools and the ones that you guys look for in terms of community or um, accountability to your community and to your parents? Sure. Um, And just really quickly, so we'll have two general folks like Mm -hmm. that, and then we'll also assign a financial reviewer to each application. Mm -hmm. We'll come up with a recommendation that goes to our board. Again, I work for the Indiana Charter School Board. We have a public meeting. Um, We also have a public hearing for every proposed school in the community in which they intend to locate where we take public comment. We take all of that stuff, take it to our board of the recommendation. Our board will vote to approve or decline. That's how that works. Cool. On the um, how it works versus um, where you have mm-hmm. elections, where you elect your school board, is we receive applicant applicant boards, as I described. Sometimes they will propose a governing board that's different than the applicant board, but we'll, um, we look at capacity as both the staff as well as those expert reviewers to determine whether that proposed governing board would have the um, necessary sophistication capacity to 
oversee a charter school. And, um, you know, really broad buckets that we look at are finance, um, school administration, um, instructional design, legal. We'll look at these big buckets. Did they bring these things to the table? Um, and then in terms of community input, that sort of comes in two ways. One, I described that we have a, we do host a public hearing and provide an online forum for the community in which the proposed school would be located to provide public comment. We certainly look at um, those comments when we make a recommendation. It's also part of um, our review of the financial component of the school because if there isn't community need and interest, frankly, they won't be able to get kiddos in their school um, and they won't be able to make ends meet because in Indiana, as we know, dollars follow the student. It's also part of, um, we look at community engagement and community connection. And so the work of that applicant board, what they've done to engage the community, have they, do they provide us with evidence that they've created these um, relationships? And um, the other part of that, um, besides the application review itself, is sort of the reality of parents are the ones choosing to send their kids there. So yes, parents may choose to go to the ballot box and vote for a school board, but parents are also the individuals that are making the decision to send their kiddos to this other school. All right, we have some phone calls now, so we're gonna get to get to the phones. We have Rick first, Rick's from Bloomington. Hello. Hey Rick, you there? Yes, I am, thank hey, you. Sure. I just wanted to add, oh sure. I just wanted to add something to and Jenny's answer about the question about why public schools don't, quote-unquote, adopt some of the things that charter schools do. And what I think is... Which is what we got as a question itself. from a caller earlier. Yeah, uh, an earlier caller. Right. The, the question itself is based on kind of a carefully crafted but false narrative that the public schools don't already provide. And... The thought that we should base something on a model which, as we said earlier, 20% of schools are failing, and then we have to ask, which model? Is it the project school? Well, there's a lot of great things about that. Or is it the rocket ship academy? So which model are we talking about potentially adopting? Because public schools are working. This is a false narrative. That they're, the other thing that we touched on is poverty, and that is the elephant in as Jenny mentioned, high-income students do well, low-income students don't. No matter what model we try to impose, that's not going to change until we start looking at that. And so, again, I think the question itself was based on a carefully crafted but false narrative. I think the question was actually saying to the extent that there are some charter schools that are outperforming local public schools, why are the local public schools not emulating the successful practices? And my answer was to say, you know, uh, it's very difficult to disentangle what might be driving those differences. Uh, right. You know when you're looking across across the street at the local charter school. Some may be easy to implement, some may be difficult to implement, but it's really difficult to assign causality to specific practices that are the ones leading to the positive outcomes. And every um, charter school is structured differently, yes. functions differently. So it's, I think that's why we don't see public schools considering, or traditional yes. public schools considering that option, because... There's no monolith no, I, I charter mm -hmm. school. There's no monolith right. public school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's that's just look. The point I was making. I, I wasn't disagreeing with Ashlyn's mm -hmm. uh, answer to that. What mm -hmm. I was saying was that looking at at the question itself and the validity of the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's let's just go back and say that you know we're we're talking about public charter schools and traditional public schools, so they're they're all public in mm -hmm. the sense of in in the the eyes of the law. So. All right. Thanks, Rick. Uh, thanks for your call. And we may get to more response later. We've got more calls to go to, though. Kathy is next. Kathy's from Bloomington. Yes. Actually, I don't think that all um, charter schools are public in the eyes of the law. There have been quite a few cases, um, labor cases, where they've said that they're private entities. But, but it is certainly the talking point that um, charter schools are public schools. Um, depends on how you define public. Is it public funding going to them, or is it public oversight with uh, democratically elected accountability? 
But that wasn't my question. Um, I, I I was sort of piggybacking on, on the conversation earlier about Ashland. You know, the, this, this talk of charter schools is interesting because um, my question is, like, when we talk about charter schools helping some kids, let's suppose the charter school is very successful in whatever way you want to define it, and it helps some children. Um, and it sort of comes down to me to a question of whether are we about individual choice or are we about the social responsibility for the common good? So, you know, as Ashlyn pointed out, that she, you can't always tell what, what factor is in there, what the magic keys to the kingdom are for success in charter schools. And we really love the idea of innovation, um, and that's an important thing to do for education. But then if we see that they're closing down, if we see that a lot of money is going toward this great experiment, and there are some issues of segregation, now the you know, NAACP is coming out against some of these, the ACLU. So what is this experiment actually doing for public education as a whole? Let's suppose it's doing okay for the little kids, the kids that go to this charter school over here, but what is it doing for the kids in the system? The kids left. What is the, what is the reason we do this? I would say, I would say it is destabilizing it, because for instance, we are working with a finite, uh, finite resources, finite money. And our local schools are supported now by a referendum, and that was necessary after the state cut $300 million from public schools back in 2009. So every six years, if we want to maintain the quality of our schools, we are going to have to run a referendum campaign, and we're going to have to support our schools and vote yes. And in the meantime, we've totally lost control because any group of of people can initiate a charter school. And and uh, you described the, the process of the Indiana Charter School Board, but as you're aware, a school locally, and I, as a citizen here, felt I was part of that process too. I showed up to those hearings. And you twice, or once you said no, once you're going to say no, and the school withdrew, and then they got to go to another authorizer. So, and they went to a private religious college as an authorizer, and now, now we have a school. So, as a, as a citizen here of Bloomington and Monroe County, I, I I question a process. Like, if you have a very good process, for instance, which I'm I'm not sure that I would accept that. But say you do, then if there are multiple other authorizers out there and there is no limit to the number of applications, then we still don't have accountability. One good process. If, if there are many other processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's, yeah, what's your response to that, yeah, Michelle? Sure, so I do think that we do have accountability to authorizing in Indiana. There's a statute in place that requires all authorizers in the state of Indiana to adopt nationally recognized best practices. Um, that was part of um, the legislative package that passed in 2015. There had been language in previously, but it was strengthened in 2015. There are also, um, procedures in place for um, authorizer shopping by charter schools. So Mm -hmm. if you have a charter school that's been closed or has received notice that they're not going to be renewed and then seeks approval by a different authorizer, they have to go in front of the State Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Now the State Board of Education is doing um, a five-year study on the performance of charter schools. So I do believe that there is accountability for authorizers. Um, And again, there's public accountability. There's um, under 20-24. Uh, any charter school that has four consis- consecutive Fs, that their authorizer is not allowed to have them in existence. So, and that's been stricter ha- than the traditional public schools. Traditional yes. public schools get six years. Uh, yes. Now that's that's shortening, but that's, but that's not changed. Yet. But previously, <laughs> but yes, right? Correct. It was so stricter for the charters. It's been stricter for the charters. And charters, I would argue, have um, additional accountability. Uh, we have. As an authorizer, we look at their performance, not only in terms of academic performance, but we look at their organizational compliance and we look at their financial performance. Um, And schools can be shut down because of those other factors that aren't just academic, whereas with traditional public schools, the only time that you're going to see um, the State Board of Education intervene is going to be based on that A to F Mm -hmm. performance. And we know that we've had traditional school corporations in Indiana that 
um, you know, are in communities with financial managers um, who wind up in deficit financing. So we do try to um, look at all of these factors um, a- as a mechanism of accountability. All right. I want to say goodbye to Kathy, but as I do that, I want to ask you to address her kind of overarching topic of our, while some charter schools may be addressing the needs of individual schools, she seemed to question that char- the charter school movement in general was good for the social um, obligation of educating all kids. Michelle? Sure. Um, so I, I am obviously an advocate for school mm-hmm. choice. I think that that's an obligation to try to ensure that st- parents are able to make decisions that they feel are in the best interest of their kiddos. Um, and we obviously have a bulk of research that demonstrates that our traditional public schools haven't always met the needs of all of our students. Um, in terms of social overall responsibility, I also think that this um, really strong discourse that's like traditional public school against public charter school has been really unhealthy if we're going to talk about social responsibility. And I'm really excited to see the work in Indianapolis public schools where we have these innovation network schools and innovation network charter schools where you see this traditional school corporation embracing strong charter school organizers and creating partnerships with them and exercising some of the autonomy and flexibility and benefits that charter schools bring and really looking at the community's kids as these are all of our children whether you're a charter organizer or you're a traditional public school teacher these are all this these are the community children and we want to provide them options that we think meet their needs and there have been some really good successes with that like ashlyn's gonna go next I think it's really hard to assess what is good on aggregate for society. Um, I think the whole school choice movement has been a very interesting experiment, but it's certainly not the panacea that many school choice proponents initially claimed it to be. Um, so we've we've learned a lot from the charter sector movement. Um, we haven't learned a ton about which specific mechanisms specifically change outcomes for students. There are a lot of what drives success for a lot of these charter school models are things like extended school years, um, Saturday school, intensive after school preparation, et cetera. And those things can be good for kids. Um, and there are other outcomes that uh, if you look at if if you look at something other than test scores, don't seem to be that great. Teacher turnover in charter schools, on average, is much higher than you see in traditional public schools, because they're burnt out, and um, and so that's another outcome that you know you, you can you can list all sorts of different outcomes that could be harmful for children too, like the mobility outcome I measured I, I spoke about before. Mm-hmm. There's also increasing evidence that students who attend high uh, you know these so-called no excuses charter schools end up with better academic outcomes and higher earnings later on, but it's at the cost of their social and emotional health. So there are all sorts of... Do we have any of those of, in Indiana? Um, yes. Okay. Uh, for example, Tindley in, okay. in Indianapolis is an example of a no-excuses charter school. Okay. We, we only have three minutes to go, and I want to try to get to two more callers. So let's try to be quick with Joyce. <laughs> Joyce from Bloomington. Hi. Hi. Um, I think the charter movement, unfortunately, puts us in a very sad situation because... The thing that makes America great and strong is to have strong public schools and common experiences, common denominator education. When you have charters, they have no requirements to have lunch, to have transportation to the schools. Um, sometimes the money, it's not a charter school maybe, but money can go to religiously based organizations and schools. And the science in something like the Charter Oaks Classical School, they use the word classical, but they're really talking about science that's outdated at best or outright wrong at worst. And to fund these schools with public tax dollars means that you have to have local referenda to continue programs like music, languages, your libraries, extracurricular activities. And that's going to lead to uneven um, school, public schools, so that you know you might have an excellent school in one pocket because people are funding the public school fully, and you're going to have a public school that's not so good in another area. And jo- then Joyce, I'm going to have to going to I'm have to ask you if you that's, have a question. So I just okay. wanted to say that you know I'm concerned about the public denomination, okay. the public denominator in public schools, and you know I'm concerned that the charter school movement may just gut the public schools and. Okay. 
I'd like to see choice in people going to a different public school maybe for the kids. Okay, thank you very much. I want to be careful about saying charters are the reason a school would have to use a referendum. We have multiple factors right now that is causing traditional public schools to worry about that. Taking the state off of, taking the general fund off of the property tax. The property taxes was a huge part of that. It's not just the school choice movement. So I want Can to make I that talk clear. about what I would see as a yeah. success of a school? Just about briefly? 30 seconds. <laughs> okay. We got about 30 seconds each to wrap up. So. As a parent, I want to know that I can send my child to a school in my neighborhood that has an art teacher, a librarian, has recess, is going to be there. I have friends who have attended the schools that my kids are attending now. These schools are investments in our community and I don't I measuring my kids test scores to me is not a great way of measuring the success of a school so um, let's let's focus our resources where they can serve all children okay Ashlyn last comment I think that the charter school sector is um, a huge a huge experiment. I think we can learn a lot from what's going on in the Indianapolis um, market right now. But I think it is sort of uh, we're we're kind of like the buck wild, crazy wild west frontier with school choice right now, and we're going to see a lot of successes and a lot of um, amazing failures as well. Michelle McCowan, sorry you didn't get here for the whole show, but <laughs> last last thirty seconds, last words yours. Sure. I just will note, because I did walk in when Dr. Nelson was talking about varied performance, and that's something that's undeniable. Um, There are charters that are tremendous opportunities for kids, and there are public charter schools that have unfortunately not met the needs of our students. And I think that part of that comes down to the responsibility of authorizers, as well as looking at ensuring that there's a holistic experience that includes art and music and extracurricular activities. So, um, yes, we are, there There are mixed performances, but there are some high-quality performance opportunities as well. All right. Thank you to uh, Michelle McCowan, Ashlyn Nelson, and Jenny Robinson. For producer Drew Dodlin and engineer Mike Pashkash, Claire McInerney for sitting in with me today. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.